Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Warning. In this episode, we discuss details about the discovery of a human body. Discretion is advised. I would like to add that this discussion is intended with the greatest respect and care to those who lost their lives. On the last episode of Guilt. If there was anything there, I would see it. So I sort of pushed myself off the tree and turned this way and, oh my God, here's this jacket. Well, here's this blue thing, square blue thing sitting there. And she came out and she was quite, um, how could you put it? quite forward about the whole thing saying well you know what do you really want this for and she says well look I'm sorry but I've uh, I destroyed they've been destroyed and then I just sort of thought what you can't you have me having me on and he would just search for years Walking all the tracks, going off the tracks, it, it just, um, it could just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive, and I, I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging, and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. Like I always say, I love how this job, if you want to call it a job, it takes me far and wide. In episode one, I was on the beach of Whangamata in the Coromandel. Right now I find myself sitting on the shore of Lake Taupo, which is in the centre of the North Island, New Zealand's largest lake. The moon is above and there's an amazing sunrise about to come over the other side of the lake. It's freezing. There's snow not far from me now. And I'm on the way for an important interview, five hour drive this morning. Just a stunning, stunning spot. I had to stop and pull over. It's truly amazing. I'll put a photo up on my Instagram if you're interested. Yeah, I'm hoping the road's going to be open, uh, the desert road in New Zealand. There's been quite a bit of snow and it's very cold. There is a detour possibly as well, but yeah, beautiful, beautiful morning. Just thinking about it, you know, I'm sure that Heidi and her barn, they would have seen 
you know they made a trip right round New Zealand and without a doubt they would have stopped and looked on this lake on that trip in 1989 some part of me I feel like I'm sort of following their path If you drive south of Lake Taupo for about 20 minutes, you'll reach what is known as the Desert Road. It's a remote stretch of highway that runs adjacent to the visually stunning Tongariro National Park. For the last 48 hours, this road has been closed due to cold temperatures and above average snowfall. But as I approach, instead of taking the planned detour, the road marshals are literally swinging open the gate. Meaning, I've just saved an hour and that I'll be the first person in three days to make the crossing. I learn within a few hundred metres just why it's been closed as I slide halfway across the road on black ice. I come round a corner and see a brilliant snow-covered Mount Narahoe or Mount Doom for Lord of the Rings fans. It truly is spectacular, and the perfect opportunity to get the drone up. You'll find this on my Instagram. But I'm not here for sightseeing. I'm making the five-hour drive north to meet someone very important to the case, whose evidence became another strand of the circumstantial rope in Tamahedi's case. His name's Jason Donald. And in 1989, he stumbled across an empty tent in Crosby's clearing with a note signed Pat Kelly. And much like John Cassidy and Mal Knopf, Jason was a keen member of the Thames search and rescue team. He recalls the time when Thames residents literally put their lives on hold to search for the missing Swedes. And the close relationship head detective John Hughes had with those involved. Oh, okay, well, so these are original. These, these, these were taken on the day. Far so out. So John Hughes there planting the Totra tree. Wow. Is that Cassidy there? Yes, yeah, he's doing the speech, yep. And the Reverend Bruce Raffin in the red there. Oh, yeah. See, they were, all like, they were all the boys, eh? His job was to, obviously... Um, put the murderer away mm. but secondly and probably primarily his focus was finding the bodies to return them home to the family and that's where he became so involved in the search I think because he was so passionate about the fact that there were so many people from Thames absolutely mm. willing to give up their pre- people like Mel North pretty much gave up his whole business just to focus on the search yeah. It got to the point where he said he just has to go back to work. He's just crippled himself money-wise because he spent so much time out searching. And a lot of these guys were doing it. And I was fortunate I worked at Toyota at the time. And a lot of the Toyota guys were um, search and rescue as well, including the management. And they just let me go whenever I needed to, Yeah, which was great. So a lot of businesses were supported. And so Hughes was just so passionate. And he was out there pretty much all the time with us, just yeah. searching. This case is unique in many ways. But perhaps one of the most unusual aspects is the dual roles of a number of key people. As both members of the search and rescue team directly working with police and as crucial witnesses in the case against Tamahedi. I'm not sure if this is something we'd see today and it could be cause for concern. But at least in the case of Jason, he never noticed anything untoward and how John Hughes or any other police acted with himself or other members of the search and rescue team. My life at the time, it was you felt felt amazing you know, being part of something of so so big. But no, not once did I ever feel that he was sort of trying to steer you in any particular direction. He was just one of the boys. Yeah, he never really talked about the case to us. He was just out there searching. He'd tell us bits of information about why we'd be searching a certain place. But he really left most of it up to Mel and John. Really, who, who were running the search side of it because he didn't um, have the, I suppose, the knowledge of being a search controller and that's where Mel and John and then Duncan Farmer, I think it was at the time, they're all, you know, our senior 
search advisors and controllers, they knew this stuff. And so they were the guys coordinating where to put people. Now, it was pretty obvious where they wanted to search, you know. They wanted to search the Tarot Creek track mm. out to Crosby's and the Cracker Creek track out to Crosby's and the Waitahi and all those tracks, every single track that mm. led out, yeah, out there, yeah. Jason himself is also somewhat unique in this case. Because in April 1989, he was only 18, making him comparatively young with respect to the other witnesses I've been interviewing. But there was a very good reason why he was so heavily involved. While the Coromandel bush and the area of Crosby's clearing was remote and inaccessible to most, this was Jason's playground. It was particularly important to me because I loved Crosby's. Like that was my, I mean, this is my album. But this here is all tied in at about the same time because um, this old cabin was a, for a dock packaway cabin that was at the site where Cass and them saw her, but it had been pulled down by that stage. And then my friend and I, Justin, we, we rebuilt it. And it was all about this time that everything was going on because when we went out here... I was pissed off because the police had gone over and they'd found our, our one of our beds and they'd taken the bed out to use it as a camp table back at camp. So we had to sleep on the floor in our own hut and we were like 18 and had no say in the matter. But what was really amazing, we were able to speak to John Hughes and say, hey, you know, the chopper's coming out empty. Can you fly us a whole lot of gear out? And he said, sweet, just ring your mum, get it dropped off down at the, um, the old pack and save before it was built and they'll um, chuck it in the chopper and fly it out for us, which was great. We flew a heap of gear out, mattresses. We didn't have to carry food, billies. So he was genuine, genuinely appreciative of you guys. Yeah, he was out. just a for us. He was just a damn good guy. Eh? You yeah. know, yeah, amazing. Yeah, like I said to my boss, you know, we'd come back from these searches, and we'd be cold and hungry, and he'd have organised food and hot stuff. Like he'd ring up the fish and chip shops or get his guys to do it, and then um, you'd turn up, and there'd just be all this, you know, hot fish and chips or whatever, because the searches were freezing. A lot of this went on over winter. Yeah, and you imagine the mud, like. It was just, I don't know if you're familiar with the peninsula of that, but those tracks, it's like tropical jungle, isn't it? As soon as you're off the track, it's just horrible. Yeah. yeah. And so we were searching, you know, six, eight hours a day in the rain, the wet, the cold. You come back, you're starving. They'd organised big camp kitchens for us on long weekends that we'd done stuff, so you'd come back and they had proper chefs there with all the food, wow. everything laid on. Yeah. I mean, that's really cool to show, you know, that it wasn't taken for granted that yeah. people oh, were putting no. all this time in. When we searched for um, Urban's body, well, when his body was located, they, they, that sparked a massive search that weekend, and I went over to it. And obviously they never turned up anything more. Mm. But the end of that day, we went back to, I can't remember where it was, it was one of the pubs somewhere, and um, he had prepaid for the beers for all the guys and all the food, everything, because we were freezing cold again. And it was just another thank you. Wow. Yeah, so there was always... Ways that yeah you know so we never really you know you didn't you come back out and you felt appreciated yeah. and you knew that when you were, um if if the helicopters could fly they would fly you in rather than walk hours and hours they would you know try and fly you in because time was precious you know they were mm. really trying to find something yeah I mean every hour wasted walking somewhere mm. is an hour wasted searching is yeah, pretty much. searching and we did search some hours yeah you imagine we'd. It was at our own discretion, or the team leader's discretion, as to how far down you'd go. Yeah. But I think it all came, it all got quite real once they found Urban's body, that all the searching we'd done prior, if he had, if she had been dumped over the track, it would have not been far. Mm. Like we were going down 100, 200 metres at times, and a 200 metres is a long time to be trying to hold a grid line. Mm. and crawling through the most grossest bush and kihi-kihi mm. and superjack and mingi-mingi and all that sort of stuff, you know, and trying to keep a line. And we found all sorts of stuff. I remember them finding old bottles and bits and pieces, nothing to do with the search, but, you know, like old marble bottles. I've got one up there now, so you can see oh, wow. one of those bottles came from the, the Swedish search when they were looking. Yeah. And um, someone knew I had a museum and they gave it to us and just all sorts of rubbish people had thrown off. Mm. People don't go too far to... Yeah. pull things down the bank it's hard to explain to foreigners how thick our mm. bush is you know it's like i know when um when heidi <clears throat> heidi and urban's family came over when they went up in the chopper and they looked they were like whoa yeah, no. this is not this is jungle 
you know, this is not like forest. It's actually worse than jungle. It's not as hot, but it's as, it can be equally as cold. But you've got, the jungle's got, I, I don't really know that much about it, but from what I've seen, you know, the jungle's got those big palms that you can sort of slash through. You can't slash through that kihi kihi, mingi mingi and mm. superjack. It's impossible. Mm. We had a saying that the superjack's so thick you've got to climb to the surface to breathe before you go back down. Yeah. I mean, it was awful. I've said it before, and now I hope you've really got it cemented in your mind. This is remote and incredibly difficult bush slash jungle, whatever you want to call it. But if you're not familiar with New Zealand, this will more than likely be unlike anything you've ever seen. Later on, you'll come with me into this area and get a feel of it firsthand. You've heard the name Crosby's Clearing a lot. But just a reminder, this is the area, approximately a four to five hour tramp from Tararu Creek Road End, where the tent was found and the car was parked. It's here at Crosby's, where Cassidy and Knopf claim to have seen Tamahedi and Heidi setting up camp, and where police maintain Heidi and Urban were murdered. A quick bit of history. It was once a remote settlement of land that had been cleared of bush to allow farming. Eventually, in 1926, it was abandoned, and the grassland was again overgrown by forest. It was initially known as Crosby's Settlement, but is now more commonly referred to as Crosby's Clearing. The area is large, but is accessible only via a number of difficult, multi-hour tramps. There are few people that have knowledge of this area, like Jason and we look over old photos while I ask him to tell me about his experience of Crosby's clearing and the day he saw the tent. Why don't we go back to, I guess, the very start. Um, yeah, so take me back. So uh, what was your experience in that area? And tell me about, your, you know, you said you trapped a lot, yeah. so you were only young at the time. Okay, so my history was my family, my dad was a pig hunter, and his whole family, all the brothers were all pig hunters. So I grew up just going to the bush. And I sort of got a little bit, as I got older, I got, really got sick of pig hunting and I just liked going to the bush. And um, But the particular trip that we found, the Pat Kelly thing, I was on a hunting trip. Um, but for me, it was really just a bush trip. Take the dogs, shoot a few goats, catch a pig if we, we can. But yeah, I've always spent my time out in the bush. And Crosby's had a particular interest to me. My, I remember my dad telling me, about the first time we went out there and just seeing, um, the, the, as far as the eye could see, was just grass yeah. and, and sheep. So that was that was really early on. It was he saw it later on in probably the sixties. But um, I always wanted to go out there, and he, he told me about a chimney. There used to be when he first went there. There was a chimney standing, and he told me about the old guy Alfie Boyer and um, Bill Cornelius, who used to live out there on the ho- in horseback. He said it was like going back hundred years to the Wild West days. And I just always thought I'd love to go out there. And I remember the very first time I went out there, it wasn't as amazing as that photo because that's really, really early on. It was more like that. Yeah. But I still was able to see all the grass and the fence lines, and I just got absolutely fascinated and, you'd probably say, obsessed with the place. And I started researching it. And and then, so it was purely by luck that we were out there that particular weekend. It, it is a hell of a story. I mean, it's something... It's probably worth a podcast on its own, yeah. the history of that area. Um, but yeah, so so you guys, so once you went out there, how often would you go out there? Were you pretty familiar with it in the oh, end? Oh, amazingly, I've been out there probably a hundred times. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, I spent a lot of time out there. There's probably not many people, I would say, that have been out there as much as myself and some of my mates. Yeah. Because we built a hut over in here. And so we'd go out pretty much every weekend just to muck around and we'd run out and then we'd be hunting out there and yeah. Spent a lot of time out there. And then because I was an explorer, I wanted to explore it too, so I'd be looking for stuff. And I mean, to me, the thing that, that I like about that, and it shows that you're obviously a person who takes note of things. You know, if you see something that's yeah. not normally there, or you're probably going to notice that. Well, that's why I looked in the tent. People mm-hmm. always say, why did you go snooping around in someone's tent? Well, I'd never seen a tent at Crosby's before. You hardly ever see anyone go out there. It was a long way to go. And people didn't generally go out there. There was no hut at the stage. Yeah, so let's backtrack and go back to when you found it and tell me why, okay, why so, you were up there. And why well, I, I was hunting. I was hunting with a guy by the name of Bing, 
his name was Richard John Kingham, but everyone just called him Bing, and I have no idea why, but um, <laughs> that was his nickname. And he was a friend of the family, so he was a bit older than me, but he loved going to the bush, and he didn't have anyone to go with, so I always went with him. Yeah, and we were heading out to Crosby's this particular time, and you know, just doing our thing, heading over to the old wool shed. And we get to the pines sort of mid-morning, wander down to this particular area down here, and I saw a camp there. And I just didn't think much of it at the time, but I thought, oh, it's, you know, quite unique to see some other people out here. And I thought, maybe they're hunters, so that's probably why, looking back, why I looked in it. I just wanted to see, is there other hunters out there, you know? And there was a, a fire that had been lit, and the embers were still still hot, so we assumed they weren't far off. So me being me, just being nosy, I just unzipped the tent and that's when I saw the lunchbox and it had, um, I can't remember what gear was in the tent at the stage, so I didn't really take any notice of that, but it was a yellow click-clack lunchbox, had a clear lid and on the lid was a note and I remember it specifically, it says, I'm tired of waiting for you, I've gone for a walk, I'll be back today or tomorrow, signed Pat Kelly. And at the time, that meant nothing to me. All it told me was there was someone else out here, and they're obviously waiting for someone else to turn up and have buggered off somewhere else. So we, this is where we found the, um, we call it the big hill. That's where the new hut is. And just down there, it's always been referred to as the pines. And that's where we saw the tent and the um, fireplace. And Okay, so yeah, so go back. So you've come down, you see the tent. You see the fireplace, yes. and you put your head in, you see the Tupperware. We yeah, got up to that and part. We, and we see the um, the note, and I didn't take much notice of it. I did notice that there was like a washing line strung out, and it had a T-shirt or something hanging oh, over it. And at the time, I remember the detectives grilling me over mm-hmm. what I'd seen, and I just couldn't remember it. But uh, it's turned out to be a, like a Whangamata saltwater shirt or something along those lines. I, I do remember them telling me what it was, but I couldn't remember remember it at the time but we carried on down over here and we camped down there the night oh okay yep so i guess what i'm thinking is you know so this area here the pines i mean so you said it's not common that you would see anyone there well i'd been out there multiple times and never seen anyone not not camping there but you know tramping wasn't a huge Mm. thing then where people would just go and stay in tents hunters would frequent it all the time Mm. um Lots of hunters would go out there. Hunters would go and stay down in the wool shed. Mm. But it was still a day trip because you could come up from the Tipuru, which would come up over here, and it was called, they called it the Long Shoot, which is the Tipuru track, and it would come up and they'd just do a big circuit down, and then they'd go back down um, a track called the Staggerer, which was a track only known to a few locals, or the Centre Ridge track, which comes down into the Tipuru again, which could create a loop. Okay, so so you you saw that tent that, and I suppose, kind of the same as John and Mel at the time. You don't really think anything of it. No, it's just a tent in a in the clearing. But like I said to you, so that's really what happened to me. And Mm. at the time, I didn't think anything of it because, um, you know, there was nothing nothing to see. We never ran into any other people at that particular day. And it was only later on down the track when I saw one of the clippings in the Team Star or the Haraki Herald, and it said. David Wayne Tamahiri's been, you know, charged with the murder of the Swedes, and he went by the name of Pat Kelly. And I thought, man, Pat Kelly, that's the name I saw. Wow, your heart must have yeah, jumped Yeah, so I went straight down to the police, and I told them, and they said, right, we'll get a detective round. And, yeah, they, that's when it all started. And this was all, everything was just snowballing from there on because that's when all the searching was happening. And um, So in terms of where you told them you saw that, that tent, where was that in relation to where John... Exactly the same spot. Literally, you know, footprint for footprint, really. Mm. Wow. Because that, that's where people would have camped. Now, I can actually show you, not on here, but there's a, there would be a picture in here of... Um, so there's the big hill, right? Yeah. That's where the new hut is. And this is... You'd, you'd come down this way, off the big hill, down through the clearings, and... Everybody would have camped just over in here because it was quite sheltered. See the spot here. Yeah, that's where the packaway cabin was, just tucked in here. And I think if we look further on, that's a different part of the farm now. I have a picture of me that little shelter. Where is it? There, that is a little shelter someone's put up 
from some junk, and that would have been the same spot as right. where um, we found the tent and where Cassidy and Mel found or ran into that person. Yeah. And so you said you've never seen someone with a tent in that spot, or no? I just hadn't because yeah, I just hadn't run into anybody out there. Anyone? No. Mm. But I knew of people going out all the time because my mates used to go out, various friends, my my dad and his hunting friends. And it was a big place, you know. You, we could be here mm. and other people could be over here. Yeah. Now, it's really interesting because the fireplace wasn't actually lit by Pat Kelly. Yeah, it was yeah. lit by Paul Loudon and um, Colin Loudon. So what they'd done, unbeknown to us at the time... They'd come up the Tipuru, the long chute. They'd walked along, got to the same place as the tent, mm. saw the tent. Everyone stops there if you're passing through before you carry on. It's a, it's the last nice grassy spot before you hit the bush again. Water, you get water there. So they stopped and had a boiler. So they lit the fire mm. and then they carried on. Yeah. And they then went down a track called the Staggerer Track, which is another side track that I was telling you about that goes back into the Tipuru Creek and it's only known by a few people but myself and Bing were coming up the Taru yep. track and they'd branched off so you just, missed just prior to us passing their track so we didn't see them so it would have only been half an hour because the embers were still hot and it shows it gives it yep. shows you how the place is so big and so yep. you can miss a person and not even know anyone's there okay but this is where it gets really really interesting somewhere between here and here they ran into a woman, that woman I was telling you about, the redhead woman they described. Her, their exact words were a big redhead woman. That was just how they spoke. Yeah. They said, we ran into this big redhead woman. She had, it, she was on a mission and she didn't stop and talk to us. She just had her head down and carried on walking. As they were coming along the ridge here, they heard chopping. So someone had a camp somewhere off the side, somewhere, not far off the track, but somewhere. Mm. and they were chopping firewood. This is what Colin told me. He said they heard the noise. Dogs went down. Obviously, could smell something. Dog howled. He figured the dog got under someone's foot and given a kick, gave a yelp and come back up to the track, and they just thought nothing of it. It's probably just some tramper down there, hunter, whatever, yeah. and they didn't want to bother anyone. They just carried on. But then they ran into this woman, and then as we got talking and this case developed and we realised we were there at the same time, because we didn't know, we we hadn't crossed paths, so we didn't know, but we did find out somehow. We were talking at work at Toyota one day, and we um, said something along the lines of, oh, about the fire, and they said, oh, yeah, we lit that fire. That's how we all pieced it together, and we were talking, then he told us about the lady... And so that you, you and Bing stayed here that night. Yes, and we and, and so we yes. walked this way, the same way as her. We never saw her, wow. and we never heard any other sign of people. But it was the same weekend. Because you know the thing that's interesting. You've got all this space. Why would you go and make a camp somewhere hidden? Why wouldn't you know? Like you think, like why would someone be camping off hidden away in here? Why wouldn't they just camp in the open areas? Yeah, well, see, that's what always intrigued me. Is he had a camp here? He had a tent, mm. but he must have had something else. Mm. If it, if it was him. Yeah. That's interesting. But I remember afterwards, after the searches had happened, and I can't remember the exact dates, but we did another search. It was a separate search. And John Hughes came with us on this one and some of the detectives, and we were all put in groups. And we found, <laughs> quite ironic, for the first time down over here, we were searching down in here, and we found a lake. And we named it Tamaheri's Lake, and they searched it exclusively because they thought maybe something. But you know what? In hindsight, it was so far off the beaten track yeah. that there's no way it was ever going to produce mm. anything. Because it's quite obvious when Urban's body was found, it had just been mm. haphazardly dragged and thrown. If she had been marched 13 or 15 kilometers out here, mm. they're not going to take. Yeah, why would you bother? Why would you bother mm. trying to hide it? And we searched this place yeah, so incredibly. This the, the focus of that big search that weekend was all through here because it was after Cassidy and Mal saw her, they obviously decided they'd better go back and check it properly, and we had probably 100 people out there. These searches were incredibly detailed, string-line searches. Jason tells me that the area of Crosby's 
was searched in such detail, he just doesn't believe it's possible that anything could have been missed. But Crosby's clearing is a huge area. Despite visiting the site around a hundred times over the years, Jason says he doesn't remember ever seeing anyone out there. But says the location he saw the tent with the note Pat Kelly and the washing line is the exact same spot Cassidy and Knopf say they saw the couple. Just to be clear, Tamahiri has confirmed that he was in Crosby's clearing around this time and had in fact left his tent. In his trial, Tamahiri took the stand in his defence, something rarely seen in a murder trial. He was specifically questioned about Jason's sighting of the tent, where he said he left his gear at Crosby's around March 9th, 1989. He says, I left a blue A-frame tent, most of my clothing, and that would be about it. I used to leave half of my gear and leapfrog with it. It's the easiest way of moving. When Tamahiri was asked about Jason's sighting of the tent and the note, Tamahiri replied that yes, he did leave that note. He claims his reasoning is that he'd had tents destroyed in the past, and leaving a note might prevent this happening. However, despite this tent appearing in the exact same spot Cassidy and Knopf saw the couple seeming to be a suspicious coincidence, Jason tells me that it makes sense. This is where people would camp, as it's the only grassy area, it's sheltered under the pines, and it's the only accessible drinking water. So then what about the red-haired woman, seen by Colin Loudon? Jason said he was there with Bing on the exact same weekend. They felt the hot embers of the fire left by Colin Loudon only minutes earlier. Yet they never saw anyone else. And definitely no red-haired woman. So clearly someone else had a camp somewhere nearby, out of sight. In the bush. We're going to delve into Tamahiri's movements around this time in detail in an upcoming episode. But in his trial, he stated that after staying the night at the Sunkist Lodge in Thames on March 9th, he made the difficult tramp to Crosby's Clearing, stayed two nights, then returned to the Sunkist Lodge on the 12th, where he booked in for one night, and he told the court he planned to head back up to collect his tent from Crosby's the next day. However, he in fact stayed five nights before returning to collect his tent. The question I have is this. What was Tamahedi doing during that weekend up at Crosby's Clearing? Remember, this is one month prior to Heidi and Urban's disappearance, so it's not related to them. But why would he walk up to the clearing, set up his tent, stay two nights, then walk back to Thames with the plan to walk back up the very next day to retrieve his gear. Now recall what Jason said earlier, that Colin Loudon had seen a red-haired woman up at Crosby's that very same weekend, and told the story of their dog getting booted by someone that they believed had a camp somewhere in the bush nearby. Neither Jason Donald, or his friend Bing, or Colin Loudon saw Tamahedi at Crosby's clearing that weekend, between Friday, March the 10th and the 12th. But according to Tamahedi, he was there somewhere. Of course, it's entirely possible they just missed him. Like Jason said, he never saw anyone up there. But it certainly leaves open the question. Who was the person with the camp hidden in the bush? Why were they hidden? And could this have been Tamahedi? But if Tamahedi had a secret hidden camp at Crosby's, and if it was him and Heidi that Cassidy and Knopf saw on April the 8th, then would he set up camp in the open under the pines where he could be seen? Why wouldn't he use his hidden sight? You couldn't find a more fitting site for a murder mystery than the abandoned Crosby settlement. What and who was seen during that period between March and April 1989 
will likely always be the subject of intense debate. Much like the discovery of the tent, the wallet, and the jacket. As I start to pack up my gear, Jason recalls Graham's stunning discovery on the track down from Crosby's clearing, and tells me of his friendship with Mel Knopf, who to this day has struggled to deal with the what-ifs of his sighting with Cassidy that day in April. I went to the exact spot because I was intrigued as to why it was found there after we'd already searched, because we'd already searched that track multiple times. And so that there was always a mystery to everybody as to how any one of us could have missed it because it was so obvious. Mm. It was so obvious. Well, that, that's the thing. So Graham sort of said, if you go behind the mound, it's mm. obvious. Yes. But if you don't, then it's not so obvious. No, well, that's so true. But if you're actively searching for something, mm. um, you would find a trail like that and you would go down it. Because the searchers back in those days, we, we knew what we were doing. We knew what we had to look for, and anything that was an easy pathway, you'd go and have a look. Because people aren't generally going to push through a hard pathway, but if there's an easy pathway, and you could clearly see how someone would go down there. And it was literally only a few metres off the track. I remember when he found it. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big thing. And it was really interesting that he had found, and it certainly sparked a whole pile of, um, you know, more information as what are we going to do, how are we going to search, have we missed something? But then everyone was sort of, well, we can't have missed anything. We found those bottles, we found all this stuff. Mm. Someone found a um, plate that had Made in Sweden on it. Now, I don't think that had anything to do with the case. It was just purely an old piece of stuff that someone had thrown away. But... It was pretty obvious for anyone who had any sort of bush knowledge, and hence that's probably why Graham found it, because he knew what to look for. Most of the searchers were experienced pig hunters and search and rescue people with multiple, multiple years of experience. That's the first thing you're looking for. We call it now um, decision points. So a decision point is where you get to an area and you suddenly have to make a choice. Are you going to go that way or are you going to go that way? Right. And a decision point is really, really crucial in search and rescue because it means that you've got to stop and think about what you're going to be doing. And as a searcher, you will think, well, what are these people going to do? I've grilled, John, I've grilled um, Mel, because Mel and I are close, yeah. you know, and Cass before he passed. But um, when I was telling you that Mel would come down to the pub and yeah. it, it's all he'd ever talk about. It's it awesome. had consumed him. And I asked him, I said to him, one time do you actually truly believe it was Heidi and he said he doesn't know he said that's the hardest thing he said he doesn't know but I know one thing he said if it, if he had have known that it was a person in distress they probably would have done something about it to them but they didn't feel the need because they didn't know and he always said to me always said to me if it was her why didn't she just yell out for help Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, 
Good to meet you. This is Steve, father-in-law. I'm back in Parakawai, in Whangamata. A few weeks earlier, I walked this forest road, up to the location Urban Hogland's body was discovered by pig hunters in 1991. Unfortunately, on that trip, we failed to find Urban's memorial. Today, I hope, will go different. Because this time, I'm making the trip with the two men that made that grisly discovery. Darren Old and Jamie Corbin. There's something about this place. It always seems dreary, and the rain again has started to fall as we make our way through the ford and up the road. Jamie is a contractor in the area, so fortunately today we have a key for the gate. Our two 4x4s wind up through the forest, until eventually recent logging and deep mud forces us to stop and make the rest of the way on foot. It's still the same location, but due to milling and reforesting over the years, the landscape has changed significantly since Jamie and Darren were last in this spot all those years ago. Just come around a corner and there's a bunch of dogs just all over the place and there's a guy with a high vis on, must be pig hunting or something. Fuck, has this happened since I was here? Shit, it has too. Since I was up here only a couple of weeks ago, it looks like they've been up here logging. They've made an absolute hell of a mess. Looks like we're going to be on foot from here. Fuck, this is new. This wasn't here a couple of weeks ago. Wasn't it? Nah. Fuck, it's that long since it's been up here, but bloody lost. Yeah, nah, the other, when I came up the other day, we just walked all the way up. So we're almost there though, it's just around this corner. Yeah, yeah, it's right on top of the ridge. Yeah. Under that big native knob. When you guys came up that day, were you walking up, or did you drive up Yeah, there? no, we walked. Yeah, we walked. Yeah. Where did we come from? We parked down at the gate, I think, didn't we? walk from there or did we go up to the end of the road and come across the lignite I can't even remember we might have come up the boundary track eh no no I know we did walk up here too we always used to check that grass and there's an old road that runs out used to be always good for a pig yeah runs out around the side there is he, was he hunting that guy down there I didn't see him with a gun did you see a guy did you yeah. oh yeah with all those dogs oh, I just seen the dog yeah now there was a few and he had a hivers on Oh, old boy. Oh, yeah. oh, I didn't see him. I seen one dog on the road, but you're not supposed to be in here. Oh, okay. During the week, like the pines are open at this time of year to the club members in the Iwi Club, um, but it's weekend hunting only. Oh, okay. So they're not actually supposed to be in here. On our way up the forest road, I noticed a man and a few dogs off to the side down in the bush. As Jamie said, he shouldn't really be here at this time. This is something about the New Zealand backcountry. If you're hiking or tramping, you might not know it, but you're likely not alone. Hunters and their dogs roam these remote places in search of wild pigs and deer. They'll more often keep away from the main trails, and it's for this reason that it's normally hunters that find things that might be hidden in the bush like drugs, or even a body. I don't remember dropping off a ridge last time. Actually, have we driven? We've gone way too fucking far. We've driven past it. Yeah, you're right. We've driven way. <laughs> well, it was a nice little hike, though. Yeah. It's back by that rock back down there, because eh? that's where you yeah. used to go up there. 
We just thought we'd stretch the legs, boys. We've driven too far. <laughs> so it's yeah, take a warm up. <laughs> I think we've, we've probably parked in almost the right fucking spot. No, I think what we've done is we've turned off on yeah. the side road. There's yeah. another road going down. So it's it under that rock, eh? Down no, below. it's not that rock. It's over here. There's a that, that hill there is above the grass. There's another one in here below the trees. You can't see. That's where he is. Oh, okay. So we need to go. Was there one? Back to the wagon, I think. Yeah, I didn't okay. I think it looked fucking familiar. I wondered about that road. Yeah. That road to the left must be the main road. This is a side road. This is the reality in the bush. We were following a forest road, and we still got lost. We've come out in an open area. Normally it would be a wall of trees, but recent milling has given us a clear view all the way to the ocean. We pause a moment taking in the view before we start to backtrack. But why take the road? Jamie cuts off into the bush and tells me instead we can follow a ridge off track that will eventually drop down into the spot we need to be. As we walk, we talk about trails that don't appear on any maps. How many like just sort of random tracks are there that aren't marked and stuff that hunters follow? And oh, there's fucking heaps of them. Heaps. Yeah, you can walk from here to Waihi on tracks. Yeah. M- me and some of the boys when we were a bit younger, we rode our horses. So you know where the you know where the knees wool is? No. There's the knees wool's between um, Thames and Kairo. So okay. you, you come out, the first little place you hit, I think, is Matatoki, where the, the butchery place is, and there's a school there. Then you come a bit further and you hit Puriri, there's an old pub there. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you turn off, just before there you turn off, and that takes you up to the Kneesville, and from there we rode right through to the head of the Wentworth, yeah. on the horses and down over there, so on old tracks. You know, some of the old fellas told us where they were and we managed to find them. And you find them, yeah. So there's tracks everywhere, the old bushmen were, you know, they cut carry off all these um, places and and they, you know, they didn't drive every day, obviously. Yeah, yeah. They lived there and then the Teamsters would come around with the horses and bring the supplies, you know. Yeah. They probably had maybe a few sheep and a couple of cows for meat, you know, and they probably had a milking cow for milk and shit like that, but they had a cook at camp and, you know, they'd get supplied by the... Yeah, yeah. So there's old tracks everywhere. Yeah, there's old mines and things everywhere. Yeah. See, there's the rock there where it is that we can see Over there, there. I think. Is it, is it that knob? It must be that knob there, and I was pointing at. The grass must be behind that knob. Another feature of this part of the world are abandoned mines. The Coromandel was once the subject of a huge gold rush in the 1800s. And the forest is now littered with abandoned shafts and remains of the mining community. Some known, some forgotten. Many have speculated over the years that it could be down one of these mines that Heidi's remains might be found. In Jamie's mind, one thing is certain. If Heidi is somewhere in this remote bush, finding her remains is going to be a challenge. After 34 years, he tells me it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. As I've found while investigating cases, a simple mistake can be made that is then repeated again and again, until over time it becomes fact. Jamie tells me one thing that's always frustrated him is the portrayal in the media, in particular a book published in 2012, that they were actually up here growing marijuana the day they found Heidi, which he says is rubbish. Oh. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack, you know, like she could be down there 50 metres. Yeah. You know, it was what, 25, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, whatever it was. Mm. One thing that annoyed me in there is he never come to talk to us. He says that we're fucking dope growers. Yeah. You know, which well, what, we've probably yeah. all done shit in the past, but that day we were hunting, you know, we were pig yeah. hunting. I was looking after my son at that stage. He was only a little wee tacker. And um, that was my main focus. And I had a dog, still had a dog that was pretty handy. Yeah. He said he'd seen some pig sign. That's what we're doing. But, I mean, I think it's pretty rude to paint us like that when 
he hasn't even talked to us or nothing, you know. Yeah. Probably should sue him for defamation or something. I mean, I just think that's pretty unprofessional myself. I've read the other material on this case, like this book Jamie is referring to. And while it's a good book, and there is a lot of relevant information, it's simply just what can be found in the police file. And in my opinion, if you want to really investigate a case, you need to get your hands dirty. Following a track, we come over a rise through the trees, and below us, spot the glade we're looking for. This is the spot here. Someone's been here pretty recently. Yeah, so can you go out? Yeah, it was different then because I remember we came down from the top and we sort of split up, you know, Darren went over that way and I was like, fuck, that looks a bit thick and shitty, I was a bit fucking tired by then and I thought, this looks more open and I went to go down and, and then he goes, hey bro, come over here and I'm like, I didn't want to walk over there, I was but fucking naffed. said, oh, what is it, some piglet? And he goes, no, it's a body and I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. And he goes, no, true. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, good one, mate, you know. And he's like, no, it's a body, come and have a look. And I said, oh, bullshit, yeah. And then he came walking over, and I thought, fuck, he's serious. He's looking at me, you know, and I thought, he's not pulling my leg. Yeah. And I'm like, must be a sheep, bro. And he's like, no, no, it's a body. And I'm like, nah, must be a sheep. He said, no, I can see the skull. He said, it'd be a sheep skull. He said, no, it's not, bro. And I'm like, fuck, he's serious. So I'll go and have a look. Oh, fuck, he's right. It's a body. It's a person. It's not a sheep. Can you remember how it looked? You know, in terms of... Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not something that you want really burned into your brain, really, so... Yeah, you could see there was a skull face down. Then the back part of the skull was showing. And then about half the ribs were filled with dirt. Yeah. And you could see the pelvis and, you know, there was a bit of nylon clothing there, so that's why we knew that something untoward had happened. Yeah because it wasn't an old mouldy body or something. There was nylon clothing on it. And, um, yeah, from memory, the legs, you could sort of see the arm bones, but the leg bones from memory were sort of scattered around, not really where they should have been, like, but it could have been pigs oh, or, yeah. you know, could be animals in it or... But that's how I remember it, but definitely, like, the skull and the, the rib cage being half buried, yeah. After a day hunting, Jamie and Darren had split up on their way back down from the bluff above. And as he made his way through the bush, Darren had come across the skeleton. Visible only because cattle had recently chewed back the undergrowth. Had it not been for that fact, the body may have never been found. I've realised, to his credit, Jamie is an incredibly respectful man. And he's not comfortable speaking about the body. But as it is important, I do have to ask. We decide to search for Urban's memorial. The bush has changed since 1989. So locating the exact spot is difficult. But Darren finds the area he thinks is the spot. And I ask him about that moment. It's like a broken tree, like about as round as a stump of this here. Because around as that, you know, that had been broken down over the top of the body, and then it was only this that I'd seen, you know, laying over the body. That when I looked through it, um, fuck, what was that feeling like at the time when you see a fucking? Yeah, I was like, Jesus Christ! I thought I wasn't too surprised because of who was staying down the road, you know. Do you reckon it's where it was, James? I think so, eh, mate? Because I'm sure when we turned, you know, I sort of remember looking and going, oh yeah, that's a broken body, and you know, like you're turning around like. Was there anyone there? You know, it was sort of an automatic reaction, mm. and the and the fence was right there. And I'm pretty certain we could see the track too. And then I remember thinking, oh, you know, it's been the ages. Whoever, yeah. You know, once we realised that there was clothing there, it was obviously something had happened. I but then you sort of think, oh, they've, they've gone. You know, whoever would, would have put it here, it's gone. But I remember thinking that they'd probably, you know, the way I thought about it at the time is, is you know, maybe they'd done them in somewhere between here and the road or maybe right here and then just pushed the ferns back and scooped it out shallow with 
you know, maybe a bush machete or something like that, and then probably slotted them in there. And the way the, the body was sort of half buried, I would imagine that when the body was left, the dirt would have been almost covered over them. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. And then they perhaps would have pulled the ferns back to disguise it, and then as the dirt settled and the body's disintegrated, the, right. the dirt's come down to sort of halfway through. Yeah. Because you're not going to have that accumulation of dirt in that period of time, are you? No, you're going to have a little bit, because the bush is always building up, but yeah, not that much. You know, I've got a fair bit of experience in, in bushing and stuff and tracking and hunting and stuff, and yeah, like the bush builds up. But... It's always been maintained by police that no attempt was made to hide Urban's body, and that he wasn't buried. While Jamie and Darren do agree with this, based on what they saw, they are certain that at least some effort was made. Perhaps to scoop a shallow amount of dirt and place it on top of the body. Darren also tells me that when he found it, it was covered with the remains of a branch, which likely would have once concealed its position. We continue to search for the memorial through the thick undergrowth. As it's my second time here, I'm desperate to find the stone and pay my respects. But I'm beginning to lose hope. Yeah, if someone's pulled it over, eh? Been That's too far up though, eh? Like, yeah, but see, yeah, that looks like it's been cut before, too. Yeah, it's pretty old. Oh, here it is. Oh, fuck! It's found it! Fucking nice work. Shit, well done. Here, Darren! Got it! Over here, bro! Uh, just come sort of straight up the hill into those kneecaps. It's always look for natural things like that cuts. Yeah, you're onto it, eh? Oh, that makes more sense now. Oh, well, it's good that somebody hasn't pulled it down. Here's us thinking that the locals might have been. I know off, you. You start yeah, fucking. No, that's why you got to be careful what you say. You see, because yeah, it was here all the time. So yeah. So it's actually it is a bit further, eh? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the stuff might not have been here then, you know. A lot of the stuff, you're talking about over 30 years ago, a yeah. lot of the stuff was probably less than 30 years old. Now, whether they, whether they put the stone exactly where we found them or not. Spotting a very old cut stump further up into the bush, Jamie pulls aside a few vines, and there's Urban Hogland's memorial stone. Standing about one foot high, now covered in thick green moss. His first name, Sven, carved vertically into the stone. What was before just an area of bush, now has so much more meaning. And this is not something lost on the two men that made that discovery on October 10th, 1991. The four of us kneel down around the stone for a time, and reflect on this dark day in New Zealand history and the people that lost their lives. Yeah, well, I think it was Savin Urban Hogland, was it? Yeah, that's right? that's right, yeah. So Savin's probably like Stephen in our language or something, oh, isn't it? So, yeah. Mm. But yeah, 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 pretty sad that they both lost their lives here, really. And <coughs> you know, I think this was the first time, really, in New Zealand history that somebody had, mm. um, from overseas, had, yeah. had come come to grief in New Zealand and, and that's part of the reason that it was such a horrendous thing for the whole country because well, we as Kiwis we didn't do stuff like that you know that mm. didn't happen and it never happened before yeah it's fucking sad eh you know you come somewhere for the trip of a lifetime and you end up never going home it's yeah you know I just feel for the families really it must be horrendous you know I don't know whether her parents are still alive but mm. it's, there, yeah. there's a good chance that they they could be deceased and they've never known what's happened to their daughter, you know. It's a hell of a thing to have to live with all these years, even if they are still around, you know. Yeah, no, it is. Um, he got to go home, even though it's not how we would have wished he went home. But Well, I mean, it was thanks to you guys that, that he did get to go home. Yeah. You know, which is... Fuck, I mean, if you hadn't stumbled across it, I mean, it could have been here for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, I don't know. It must have been meant to be, you know, like I say, if it, we'd have been another three weeks later, the ferns probably would have grown over again and you know, Darren wouldn't have seen them, you know. So yeah. everything, I suppose the stars just align sometimes and it, it, it was obviously supposed to, it was supposed to be found if you look at it on a different level. Yeah. But it's just a shame that um, there's been no closure for her and her family, you know. But who, who knows? Mm. Nobody knows, you know, and that's the sad thing. And your family don't know, and that's the saddest thing. Mm. They've got no closure, eh? It'd, it'd be good to, you know, it'd be good to give them some closure. Jamie and Darren's lives truly changed that day, 33 years ago, for better and worse. This discovery has followed them throughout their lives. And they've endured every angle. Even having the finger pointed at them in the early days of the discovery by police. Thinking they somehow must have known more. The $50,000 reward for locating the body was never paid. Because as Darren tells me, the police told him, we don't pay dope growers. That would have been a life-changing amount of money for two 20-somethings in 1989. But they don't seem to care. Coming here today with these guys has surprised me. As the four of us kneel around the memorial, it really is an emotional moment. And I can feel the genuine care and compassion in Jamie's words. And we're quiet as he gives what feels like a benediction. They were able to provide Urban's family with the closure they so desperately sought, and his remains were sent back to Sweden, where he was laid to rest with his family, where he belonged. There's only one reason why Jamie and Darren have come here with me today. To revisit this site and dig up these old memories. And that's because they know the story is not yet complete. Heidi's family have never been so fortunate as to have that closure. And if coming back here and telling their part in this tragedy might help Heidi in any way, then they're all for it. Last night... We went out in the middle of the night and looked for some kiwis. As you may know, they are nocturnal and sometimes you can hear how they scream when they are looking for food. The kiwi has diminished a lot and is now seen in just some areas. It's almost impossible to see them because of the very tight vegetation. So far we haven't seen any, but we haven't given up. Urban Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolfe. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions. And are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent, unless proven otherwise in a court of law. Voice acting in this episode, Joachim Berg as Urban. If you have any information related to the murders of Heidi and Urban, you can email us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com You'll find further photos and videos on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ and I highly recommend you join the discussion with thousands of Guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. You can support us to continue to make great content plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.